0: Listeners, this is Gerard Robinson coming to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia. I am here joined with the fabulous, the brilliant, the always interesting Kara, who is going to talk about what we're going to talk about today, which in many ways will be one of the last, but not yet last, of the conversation we have together, my friend. How are you?
1: I know. I'm well. Yeah, I don't think we have shared with our listeners yet, Gerard, that you and I who have been a team now for what? We're going on two plus, two and a half years?
0: Nearly three and a half.
1: Three and a half?
0: Yeah, you started in 2020.
1: It went so quickly, Gerard, that I just feel like, it's sort of like my life. You know, in the morning <laughs> I wake up and I'm like, I, I thought I was 25. Wow, we can share with our listeners that this will be our penultimate show. We have decided to say goodbye together because you and I have become quite a team over the past few years, I think. And so the learning curve will be off on new adventures just without Gerard and Care, but we can talk more about that next week. So yeah, not, not time to get sentimental yet, right, Gerard? Not yet. We'll save it not for uh, not next Not yet. Not yet. All right. So save it for next week. But yeah. So it, what did you say? I'm always, I'm always fun. I'm always something. You listed characteristics that my children would disagree with. But but I thank you. And I'm here. We, have, we are finally out of school here in the great state of the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts. My kids are finally out of school. Today, I negotiated the super fun reset to summer camp, which sounds like it should be easier than school. But when you have three different children in three different camps, it's not. So bad planning on mom's part. But other than that, happy to be here with you. And we've got a great guest today, Gerard. We're going to be talking with Eric Rosbach, who is Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. So I'm looking forward to that. Also, we've got some great stories of the week. No no dearth of things to talk about in our world. But why don't you go first? I'll let you have the first word here.
0: When we think about American politics, Iowa, of course, comes to mind because they're one of the first states to host a caucus to give us a glimpse into who are the nominees for political parties. Well, guess what? Iowa is now in the news again for a different level of politics. So when Iowa and the governor, Kim Reynolds, she made school choice, one of her signature issues as governor, and she signed into law, as did other states, an education savings account bill signed into law. And the goal, like ESA, is to provide money to families who want to put their children in a private school of their choice. Well, Iowa, at least the legislative analysis team, they said, we estimate that 14,000 people are going to apply for the ESA. And we estimate roughly it's going to be $107 million that's going to cost the state. Well, here is a real good glimpse into how people vote with their feet in the real world. Now, I've worked in other states where we have school choice plans, either a voucher, tax credit program, or ESA. 14,000 people was the estimate. I can tell you that was pretty good. Guess what? 17,500 families have signed up for the ESA program. And as a result, of course, it's going to raise amount of money needed for the program to approximately $133 million. So before I walk through the numbers, let's just take a moment to think about this. Iowa, a state that's not known for a lot of school choice, a state that's one of the best in the country in terms of strong public schools, also strong public universities as well as private, a state that has done pretty well across the board over time with NAEP. And they decide we want to offer an opportunity for people to go to private schools. Now, of course, those who don't like school choice use two arguments to say why it's going to fail and why it's going to basically be a bad thing. Number one, they said you're going to take money away from public schools and that's going to destroy public schools. They're going to close and they're going to consolidate. Well, you know what's interesting? There are 99 school districts in Iowa. Guess what? 41 of those school districts do not have a private school, 41%, 41. So roughly 41% of all the school districts, there's no private school. And guess what? 20 have at least one private school. So when you combine those two, nearly two thirds of the school systems in the state of Iowa have no private schools, which means those public school dollars are going to stay in place. And when we're talking about dollars, for schools, 133 million. The teacher unions and others said they're draining money away from public education, and yet they didn't mention that the budget for Iowa is approximately 3.3 billion dollars. In a state where two thirds of the school system students, in fact, who go there or are in those schools, there are no private schools, or at least one in twenty of those. So the idea that this is going to drain public school system Is just not going to fly. One argument they did not use is that ESAs would lead to racial segregation, as they do in many other states, in part because Iowa's one of the most racially homogenous states in the country. Nearly, I think, 88% of the population itself uh, is white. So they didn't use that. They did bring up one that we should think about. And there's a concern about LGBTQ students and whether or not private schools are going to bring them in. That's a legitimate question, and we will see how this plays out in Iowa as we're watching other states do the same thing, because this is public money. These are religious schools. They can decide who can come in and come out. So we'll take a look at that. But it's just worth noting how many schools are not going to be devastated. That's number one. Number two, 17,500 families deciding to put their name on the list to participate in this program is tremendous. Why? Because it shows that in a great state with a great public school system, there are families who simply want a different type of education for their child. They're not anti-public school. They're pro-smaller school. They're pro-Catholic. In fact, the Catholic diocese for the state said that their school system could roughly house 7,000 additional students to what they have right now. So we'll see how that will work. So as we think about Iowa, we think about politics. Here's one place to look. That's going to give us a new glimpse into exactly what ESAs look like. Each ESA is roughly $7,600. And that money, of course, is the state portion. The school system who's losing a student will keep approximately 1000 in place. And within three years, they're going to open it up to everyone. Right now, most of the families who come in will be under $300,000. So that is my take on Iowa to be my last story of the week for our show I think it just brings in together what we've talked about on the learning curve people politics progress promise and performance
1: my thoughts. waiting for the final alliteration you know and I was just thinking wow he's hitting every school choice argument on that and of course this is something that is near and dear to both of our hearts which is why we spend so much time talking about it and this is a show about how we should be thinking about education differently. For listeners, this number that you've cited in Iowa, right, that they are so far over the number that they had planned for, what you said, they were planning for 140,000, is that it, Gerard? 14,000. Oh, I'm sorry, well, there we go. They were planning for 14,000 and now they got to what, 17,000 or something like that? Yep. Which is amazing. So let's put this in context for our listeners. Most ESA programs to date, you know, we've had this year where ESA programs, I wouldn't call all of them, quote, unquote, universal because they're like Iowa. Some of them will open up over time, but they aren't universal yet. But traditionally, ESA programs have been teensy, weensy, tiny. I'm talking anywhere from a few hundred kids in some cases to a few thousand kids in other cases. And they've either been means tested, meaning you have to make under a certain amount of money to qualify They've been solely for students with specific needs, et cetera. So this is a new day. And some folks would say, oh, I don't like the term vote with your feet. I'll I'll point to a conversation that I was having. I was with family in my home state of Michigan this weekend and having a conversation with a beloved family member who just really vehemently disagrees that, quote unquote, any public funds should go to private education, to which my response was, well, Families and kids can't wait. <laughs> so why on earth should we say, fix something that we've been trying to fix since before Brown v. Board and tell families, just hang out and, and wait a bit. And this is exactly what you're saying. When when parents resoundingly say, I need something different, it's a new day. But it got me thinking so much about, we are constantly drawing this distinction between what is public and what is private. And so we're constantly talking about public money for quote unquote private education. And I think we're getting to a point when we need to flip that script and question what is public education. Because if public education is publicly funded, then it doesn't matter what type of school you choose to attend. If we break down barriers, specifically those that have long been related to zoning and redlining and things designed to keep people out and not let them in, designed specifically to keep Black people out and not let them in. If we think about breaking down those barriers and boundaries, then what we have is just a public system unlike one that we've known before. Now, you bring up the really good point that private schools, as entities that have traditionally been privately run, have autonomies that public schools don't have, and they should continue to have those autonomies. There's, you know, there's this really interesting thing around the question of the extent to which private schools, faith-based schools, most is are what mostly attract the argument, discriminate specifically against LGBTQ plus families and or children. And I'm not going to say that it never happens. And when it does, I think it's quite egregious. But I think that the instances when it happens are so few and far between if you really look at research and anecdotal evidence. But that said, that's also something that could be fixed at the federal level, right? If we had... Equal protections for all people, regardless of sexual orientation or gender identification, whatever it is, that would be something that would be out of the hands of the state. So it's something that I just like to encourage people to think about because most laws that allow public funds to go to private schools ensure that those schools have to, at a base, adhere to federal civil rights codes. And so it's something that there are probably multiple ways for thinking about it. But again, I'd like to say. I think most parents, first of all, in the context of school choice, are going to choose the school that is the best fit for their kid anyway. And so they might not be choosing a Catholic school if, for example, you know, they don't agree with the Catholic faith or pick your religion, whatever it is. So this is about pluralism, of course, as somebody we've had on the show a couple of times, Ashley Berner has written so wonderfully about and really something to think about. And I'll pick up really quickly, Gerard, before I get to my story of the week. supply side issue that you are citing here, because to me, the old arguments against school choice are really becoming just that they're becoming old, they're not holding up because people across the political spectrum are saying, hey, I'm going to take advantage of these programs because it's what I want for my children. But when folks want private schools, and those schools don't exist, we've got to think about how you incent the establishment Of new and really diverse crops. I mean, diverse in terms of like the kinds of innovative educational offerings they're giving to children, the kinds of children they want to serve, diverse offerings across the board. And that's going to be a problem, not just in Iowa, but in states like it is to attract really education entrepreneurs to these places to offer new options to parents. I'm going to take a hard left, not a hard left. I'm going to take like a soft left, Gerard, because My article is also about a topic near and dear to our heart. It's about Montana and the birth of a new charter school law, which we talked about mm, just a little bit on this show, but it's something that I think deserves a little bit more attention. So as you know, Gerard, recently Montana, one of the one of the old holdouts in charter school world, I think now we're down to like just two or three states that no longer have charter school laws, finally this year has passed a law that and is of course now there's a lawsuit to repeal it. But I want to give a shout out to Learning Curve listener and staunch advocate for kids, Trish Schreiber, who really did so much to make sure. That Montana kids have access now to charter schools. And so this is a law that is going to, when implemented, this article says if implemented, but I'm going to see when, will allow parents to choose what what Montanans are calling a community choice school, because Montana has this antiquated language about charter schools on the books. And these schools are in essence, they are charter schools. They're going to be, they're going to be a contract outlining their powers and responsibilities and performance expectations. So autonomy in exchange for accountability. And they're going to be authorized by commission appointed by the governor, state superintendent, and bipartisan legislative leadership. So this is really Fascinating, because to your point, detractors of this new law are saying, oh, this undermines public education and this is going to be terrible and it's going to drain money. I want to note this is straight from the language of the bill that these schools would the law requires them to be open to, quote, any student residing in the state, any student. So talk about breaking down boundaries and Montana, a largely rural state will probably also have more virtual options for students. You're thinking about students who come from places where there is maybe one option and one option alone. They're going to receive per pupil state funding through the Office of Public Instruction, similar to public schools. So they are publicly funded. Of course, as all charter schools are, they will not be able to discriminate as to whom is accepted, as no charter school can. And they're also going to have be exempt from certain regulations, which will allow them the flexibility to serve kids and to organize around a particular mission or theme. So the lawsuit that's being brought is one that we've seen this dance before. We've heard this song before. It's one that says, you know, this isn't constitutional. These are calling charter schools private and privately run and launching all of the quote-unquote dirty words against them. But I think that if history shows us this battle has been fought in other states, it seems that the people of Montana really want these new charter schools to go ahead. And I look forward, Gerard, to seeing the day when the first charter school opens in Montana, and then the second, and then the third, and kids have different options. Because just like with ESAs, It's a new day, and charter schools are going to be part of that new day, especially out in the West. Congratulations to our friends who got the law passed, and may the force be with you as you fight this next challenge, which I'm sure was expected. Gerard, what do you think about this victory in Montana and this little little bump in the road that they're facing?
0: So first of all, congratulations to all the families who supported this initiative Glad to have Montana as part of the charter school nation. Uh, It's been a long time coming, but we are closing the gap, getting to 50 states. This is really for the listeners just to put in context how old and tired the argument is and how constitutionally unsound, politically unsound, maybe well rhetorically, but politically speaking, when the question about the public nature of charter schools have been raised, State after state, in the majority of the cases, guess what? The Supreme Court of the state or a court in the state, but often Supreme Court state in the state said it's constitutional. And the reason I bring this up is because California was the second state in the nation behind Minnesota to pass a charter law in the early 1990s. In 1990 in the early 1990s, people sued because they said charter schools aren't public. In 1997, the court came back and said, in fact charter schools are public. It was challenged in Colorado. The court said 1999, they are public. Challenged in your state of Michigan. And in 1997, the court said it's actually public. In New Jersey, a place where I spent time in 1999, they said it was constitutional. In 2006, Ohio, the court said it was constitutional. But sometimes it wasn't so in the court, because in places like Georgia, which created a state charter school commission to approve charter schools statewide. I was fortunate to be appointed to that charter school commission. Our state Supreme Court, our being at that time, Georgia, abolished it in 2011. And so they said, you know what, let's put this issue before the voters. And the Georgia voters approved an amendment to the state's constitution that would allow the state commission to approve charter schools' Which is a different way of talking about its publicness because in all the states that I mentioned, the issue was these are public schools are taking money, da da da. So, Montana, just take a look at what other states have done, walk the lane on this. There'll be ways to make this work. But I'm glad that they're joining the conversation because for me, it's never been about anti public school as much as it's been pro opportunity in ways that we can provide to families. So, those are the
1: things that 100%, and we are working for public schools just as hard as we are working for every family to have access to whatever school they want, especially publicly funded schools of their choice. Gerard, we've got a wonderful guest waiting for us, so we better get moving. We're gonna be speaking with Eric Rossbach. He is the Vice President and Senior Counsel of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Probably he's thinking about these issues as well. We will be back with him right after this. Learning Curve listeners, please help me welcome Eric Rosbach. He is the Vice President and Senior Counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, where he has served since 2003. He has led or been part of Beckett litigation teams in each of Beckett's path-breaking victories at the United States Supreme Court, including Hosanna versus Tabor, Hobby Lobby, Holt v. Hobbes, Zubik v. Verwell, Agudath Israel of America v. Cuomo, and Fulton v. Philadelphia. In 2020, Eric argued Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru to the Supreme Court, garnering a seven two win for his Catholic school clients. Eric has also briefed and argued cases in federal appeals courts and state Supreme Courts across the nation. He frequently comments on church state issues in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and of course other major press outlets. Eric has published legal scholarship in the Harvard Law Review Forum, the Tennessee Law Review, the Illinois Law Review, the Cato Supreme Court Review, and other legal journals. He's also served as a law clerk to the United States District Court Judge Lee Rosenthal in Houston, Texas. Eric graduated from Haverford College with a degree in comparative literature, is a member of Fitzwilliam College, University of Cambridge, and is a graduate of Harvard Law School. Eric Rosbach, thank you so much for joining us on The Learning Curve today.
2: Thanks for having me on, Kara. (laughs)
1: Well, so there is a lot in your bio that we could ask you about. We could probably spend an hour just on one of these cases, which Jordan and I might be inclined to do. But I want to ask you sort of a general question that is so much in the American dialogue around our courts and our Constitution these days. And that is this, this disagreement, some would call it a battle between those who view the Constitution as a living document and those who argue for Original intent or a very textual reading of American constitutionalism. Can you talk about these two different philosophies and, like, how have they impacted not just debates around the court rulings that you've worked on with specific regard to religious liberty, but how do they impact our view of the courts, uh, of our system?
2: I think it's a great question. It really has been a central jurisprudential battle that has gone on, but I think it's sort of in its waning days. And so the way to think about it is there's sort of two sides. One is the U.S. Constitution is sort of a living document. It changes with the times, it changes with mores, whatever happens to be in fashion politically at that particular point in time, and it sort of adjusts itself via judges. So the judges get to decide, and particularly Supreme Court justices get to decide how the Constitution's sense should be updated to comply with or or conform to modern understandings. The other side of it would says this is a kind of a social contract. It's a deal that we have between Americans and that therefore you have to look at what did people mean when that document went into force and what does the text really say And what did they really mean when they said things like an establishment of religion? And so that really has been a major conflict, but I would say it's in its waning days. And the reason I would say that is because really the side of history has won that debate. So Justice Scalia, who has passed away, was really the major proponent of moving towards a historical understanding of the Constitution. And you know, it's associated with this legal theory called originalism, but really if you think about it more broadly, history is what it's what it's about. What does the history and text of the constitution mean for us today? And he said it gives judges too much power to let them do the updating. That right really belongs to the people who instituted the constitution in the first place but you can even see with justice kagan made a really remarkable statement she is you know generally considered to be on the more left-leaning side of the court but she said we are all originalists now and what that means in her view is that everyone is going to focus on original meaning of the constitution everyone's going to be looking at history so i think that those are really there was this battle But there's not as many people now arguing for that living constitution model as maybe 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. And I think that has a lot of effect because what it means is the court is really focusing on history across the board, particularly when it comes to constitutional issues.
1: So you don't foresee a swing if probably many, many, many years from now we have a differently formulated court, meaning Justice Kagan have been referring to the dominant thrust of the court at this point in history. Will the pendulum swing eventually?
2: One can never predict the future with great ability, but I do think that the court really has committed to this idea of history and even decisions by many of the justices who are considered really on all sides of the court, right? All all sides of the court. Traditionally, originalism is associated with the more right-leaning side of the court, but really all of the court pays attention to history. And so you can see opinions by both Justice Thomas or Justice Sotomayor that are invoking history to make the point and reach the conclusion that the court is reaching. So it's really I really think it is going to be a durable change.
1: It's fascinating. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about a theme that is near and dear to Gerard and to me, something that we probably talk about too much for some of our listeners, but it really drives so much of our work. And that has to do, I've got a couple questions for you around school choice litigation, and you've got great experience here. But I want to start with something that I know, certainly puzzles me. And that is that most people have absolutely no problem with government, whether it's state government or federal government, supporting the education of citizens with publicly funded scholarships and loans, even if it doesn't have to be, I live here in Massachusetts, right? You don't have to take that federal support or that state support to the University of Massachusetts. You could just as easily take it to the Jesuit College, to Boston College, right down the street from me. And yet when it comes to K-12 to schooling, the number one argument I think you often hear from people who do not believe that we should use government funds to provide parents with choice, they'll say, this is an issue of the separation of church and state, which I would say is probably a misreading of what we would term is the issue of the separation of church and state, but can you talk a little bit about how you view, how is it that we as an educated citizenry can sort of hold these two things to be true at once, that that government support for religious institutions and higher education is just fine, but that no, 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 when it comes to K-12?
2: I think it's a great question, and ultimately it's related to the last question you, you asked, which is about history, I think that there's been a history, particularly coming from the United States Supreme Court, of trying to use the K-12 through system to more or less form people in a particular way of thinking. And this goes all the way back to the first half of the 19th century, when in response to large-scale immigration from Catholic countries, there was an effort to sort of Americanize those students, often directed with, you know, pretty strong vitriol against Irish Catholic immigrants in particular. And the idea was we need to program them, program these students before they grow up so that we can get them to be real Americans, which also meant not being Catholic at that time. And so this sort of standardization process or standardization of of children was really kind of built into the K through 12 system from the beginning, whereas universities could be linked to a a sort of longer standing tradition coming out of Europe, going all the way back to the foundation of, you know, the universities in Italy in the Renaissance and the idea of free inquiry, freedom to decide what one believes about things was there from the beginning. The public schools were really from the very beginning designed around this kind of standardization process. And so that I think is the tradition that then the Supreme U S Supreme court drew on in deciding some of these establishment clause cases, these church-state separation cases, I don't think that that was an accurate understanding of what the founders meant when they adopted the establishment clause. And now the U.S. Supreme Court in the last couple of years has made very clear that that is not the way to think about these things and that really there isn't a bar. And if anything, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution says that religious schools can't be excluded from public funding streams that are generally available to lots of private entities.
1: So let's take that because there's been a lot of litigation in recent years that clarifies that. So getting rid of Blaine Amendments, Espinosa v. Montana Department of Revenue, and then more recently Carson v. Macon saying that, you know, if you're going to have a program that publicly funds schools, you can't for an institution just because it is faith-based. So Let's pretend for just a moment (laughs) that everybody has put that argument to the side. I don't think everybody has, but it seems that it's an increasingly ineffective argument to make. I think during the pandemic, folks thought, "Okay, there's a school choice explosion happening because we're in the midst of a pandemic. But the momentum not only seems to have continued with school choice, but more and more the new choice programs that we're seeing are what we might call universal in nature or leaning toward universal, meaning they're no longer means tested. They're no longer only for special groups of students. And it's a separate show to talk about in implementation, how that really works. But I'm wondering about what are the arguments left against religious school choice? And what do you see are the pieces of litigation we're most likely to see going forward when it comes to testing this assumption that faith-based schools can be part of this broader school choice landscape.
2: As you mentioned, the Supreme Court has really instituted a, a sea change in this area, not just with respect to the Establishment Clause, but also with respect to the Free Exercise Clause, which protects the free exercise of religion, no matter what religion. And there's a string of three cases, starting with the Trinity Lutheran case, and then the Espinoza case that you mentioned, and then finally, uh, very recently, the Carson against Macon case out of Maine, where they said that you you can't exclude a religious body. So this includes schools, and these cases were about schools, but it actually goes a little more broadly than that. But whatever the religious institution, it's applying for a generally available public benefit you can't exclude them from that unless you know you meet an extremely high standard. You have to have an extremely good reason to exclude them. And most of the time, they're not going to have that reason. And so that's now been made very clear as a legal matter at the highest levels. But there is a sort of idea that, that resistance must be made against this legal standard. And Maine in particular has announced that it is going to defy the will of the United States Supreme Court by attempting to exclude religious schools again. The way they've done it is by putting in these sort of, so they lost the case at the United States Supreme Court. They put in some poison pills where they said, you can get money, but you have to allow all kinds of religious content in your school. So if you're you're a Catholic school, you also have to allow Baptist ceremonies and Baptist activity in your school, or you have to allow Hindu activity in your school if any student wants that, if you're going to receive public funding. That's sort of a poison pill because, of course, the whole point of the Catholic school is to inculcate the Catholic religion. But the same would be true of the Baptist school not having to do Catholic religious teaching because they they disagreed with that. So that's one area where I think you're going to see some pushback against this new understanding of the Constitution. Which is that they will say, oh, you can't have religious content or you have to treat all religions equally, even if you yourself are a religious institution. That's one thing. I'd say the other area where you're going to see it is in an an, an idea of non-discrimination. That is, you can't prefer your own particular religious group in terms of admissions or in terms of who you hire if you're going to participate in the public benefit. So if you get tuition assistance or Scholarships, you are going to agree not to discriminate as defined by whatever state it is, and that of course would be a major problem. So if you're in an Orthodox Jewish school, you're going to want to admit Orthodox Jews to that school. That is the idea of the school is to provide a Jewish education to Jewish kids, and to then say, well, you know, if you're going to receive this benefit, you have to throw that overboard. That undermines the entire idea of the school and kind of commandeers it, kind of commandeers the school. So I think that's where you're going to see this sort of resistance. I think some of it will also be inertia. That is a lot of school administrators just have in their heads that separation of church and state means elimination of the church or no intersection with religion at all, which is now the Supreme Court has made very clear that's not true. But the sort of folk meaning of the Constitution that's incorrect is going to continue for a while because that's how people were trained for 50 years.
0: In 2020, in fact, September 10th, 2020, Kara and I had the pleasure of interviewing Jason Vetrick, Director of Policy for Ed Choice, and Jay Green at the time, he was a professor at the University of Arkansas, today he's at Heritage. And it was for their co-edited book, which they also added, uh, Matthew H. Less, called Religious Liberty and Education, a Case Study of Yeshivas v. New York. And I mentioned that because a number of our listeners identified that this is one of the few times they had an opportunity to learn about Jewish schools and the role of religious liberty. And so that same theme comes to mind when I think about Lawton v. California Department of Education. Their a group of parents want to send their children to Orthodox Jewish schools but are prevented from doing so because guess what? California, my former home state, prohibits federal and state special education funding to be used at religious private schools, although they allow those schools to be used at secular private schools. Could you discuss with us the details of the case and why you guys decided to get involved with it?
2: Absolutely. So you stated exactly what the case is about. We're representing two Orthodox Jewish schools as well as three different Orthodox Jewish families in partnership with Orthodox Union, which is you know one of the main umbrella groups for Orthodox Jews in this country. And we brought a case in Los Angeles Federal District Court saying that you just can't exclude these kids from the disability benefits that they are entitled to because they want to use them at an Orthodox Jewish school in accordance with their very clear religious beliefs. And it's really a problem for Orthodox kids because, you know, Orthodox Judaism is a high obligation religion. It's a religion that makes a lot of demands upon its adherents, And those demands occur during the school day, you know, just take something as simple as keeping kosher. It's very hard to keep kosher actually at a public school. So if the price of getting help with your disability, be it, you know, the child is blind or the child has a cognitive disability, it's extremely hard to maintain keeping kosher or attending to prayers and things like that throughout the school day. If you're at a garden variety, Los Angeles unified school district, public school. And so we brought this lawsuit to say, look, you're excluding them from this program. It's, it's unjust. And there's no reason you have to do it other than California state law. And, you know, the specific issue is that the California Education Code says that you can spend these disability benefit dollars that come from the federal government ultimately at non public schools, but they have to be non public, non sectarian schools. And my guess is that the reason that ended up in the California Education Code was because of California's. Blaine Amendment, which I'm, I'm guessing your listeners are probably familiar with the concept of Blaine Amendments, but our guess is that that's how that ended up in the California Education Code several decades ago, and it really is sort of the dead hand of Blaine now affecting these Orthodox Jewish kids in L.A. So I think that's the the issue behind the lawsuit, and it's really it's really a huge issue. And what's
0: so interesting about this is we're t- talking about students who have special education needs. And we know at the federal level, we have the Individuals with Disabilities Act, which basically says we should ensure that all children with disabilities in America can receive a free and appropriate public education. But in this case, we're not seeing that move forward. In fact, Pioneer published two research papers about IDEA and religious schools, and we'll of course have that posted to our account. So could you talk to us about how California, we are talking about the state law and the regulations and the bureaucracy, But how can they stand behind this? And what role is the U.S. Department of Education and the state DOE doing to try to make this work or not make this work?
2: Well, so far, at least, the United States government is not involved at all. The California Department of Education and Los Angeles Unified have, they're seeking to dismiss the lawsuit. They say, you know, there's not a problem here. It doesn't violate the law. A lot of the things they say are based off of what I would call much older understandings of the Constitution that are really completely outmoded after the Trinity Lutheran Espinoza Carson line of cases came to be. Even before then, I think it would have been a little bit outmoded. So we'll have to see what the court does with it. We are going to have a hearing in July. We've moved for a preliminary injunction in the case and saying like, look, this is an open and shut case. Under these three cases, you cannot do what you're doing, and you need to stop it. So we'll we'll find out pretty soon whether the court agrees with us or not. And, of course, either way, I wouldn't be too surprised if there were appeals in the case as well.
0: If memory serves me correctly, and I'm thinking about Catholic schools now before I go to the next question, Catholic schools in 2021 sued LA Unified for gutting some of the funding, Title I funding they had access to. And again, I mention this in part because I know in Virginia, our public schools receive federal dollars. And yet in California, we're making a distinction that special education money versus, you know, Title I or Title II for teachers, I guess Title II for teachers and Title I for students. You mentioned the Orthodox Union, and uh, it's the country's largest umbrella organization representing, I guess, approximately 1,000 congregations, as well as more than 400 Jewish non-public K-12 schools. Is this a rallying point for various religious groups who are not Jewish to be aware of as relates to either growing legal challenges they're facing, or is this just the next step that religious schools in general should take a look at because of the way that we're sparsing the word special ed versus federal versus choice?
2: First of all, I think it ought to be a rallying cry for a lot of different religious organizations. That is, people of all different faiths are going to be affected by the outcome of this particular case or other cases like it. The Beckett Fund also has a lawsuit in Maine. You know, I mentioned that Maine was sort of doubling down on its unconstitutional position. We brought a case called St. Dominic's Academy on behalf of Catholic School in Maine against Maine's attempt to double down on its illegal position. So unfortunately, I think we're going to have to see a lot of these cases come up because I don't think that the current leadership of the public school system is sort of going to willingly go along with the change. So the the change has been announced by the United States Supreme Court. It's said that we have to move to a non-discrimination approach towards religious people and religious schools. You can't just exclude them from programs because they're religious or because they have religious content or because they follow their religious beliefs and how they run their schools. Since the court has said that, I still think that there's like, like I was mentioning earlier, you're going to see some resistance. And so that means that some of these lawsuits are going to have to happen until essentially the message gets across that the world has changed a little bit and you're going to have to accommodate yourself to that. But I don't think it's just going to happen, you know, automatically. You know, people point to a court decision and say, "Oh, you know, time to change your entire way of approaching these questions." <laughs> they just aren't going to do it in some places, and so that's why it's important for people to support and push for these changes, including via lawsuits.
1: Wow. Well, Eric Rossbach, I think we've covered a ton of ground <laughs> in a very short time. And Gerard and I thank you so much for that. We thank you for your clarity and for shedding some light on some of these issues that we've talked about on the learning curve, some of them before, but certainly never with this angle. And we really appreciate your expertise. So thanks for spending time with us today.
2: Well, thanks for having me on and thanks for having a podcast about these issues. They're so crucial to the way that our our country even exists and really if our society is going to continue what you're pushing for needs to happen so
1: yeah well thank you as long as there are guests like you there will be a podcast like this from pioneer institute (laughs) so wonderful well i'm sure we will talk again in the future thanks again and have a wonderful day
2: okay you too take care
0: And my tweet of the week comes from the National Constitution Center, June 19th. And it says, word of the day, emancipation proclamation finally reaches enslaved people in Galveston, Texas, on June 19th, 1865. A rare printing signed by President Lincoln is on display in the Civil War and Reconstruction era at the National Constitution Center for a limited time. So those of you in Philadelphia or near Philadelphia, go and see this. I was celebrating Juneteenth with my family. It's something that we've known about for decades, long before it became a national holiday. And it's just one slice of time to identify just how long the words of freedom have to travel before everyone actually gets a chance to take a bite to the American pie. So
1: Really amazing to think about, Jordan. I had to say real quick, I was explaining to my children yesterday on Juneteenth, I was explaining to my children what Juneteenth is all about and why it recently became a national holiday. And they were having such a hard time wrapping their mind around a world in which word didn't get out immediately. You know, as so think about that, the long struggle and how much longer it would become. So happy that we are finally recognizing this. Together as one people. Some have been recognizing it for decades and decades. So thank you for that tweet. I get to plug next week's guests, Gerard, as I do every single time we end the show together. <laughs> and next week's guests are going to be Drum roll. Gerard Robinson, and Kara Campbell. Roll. <laughs> Drum roll, please. So we'll be here, listeners, to close out our time on the learning curve, our joyful time on the learning curve, a time that's Allowed us, I think, to become much better friends. We knew each other before this, but boy, we didn't get to spend so much time together. And I have appreciated every moment. Looking forward to some coffee talk, Gerard. And I hope our listeners are too. So until then, toodles. And um, (laughs) we'll be back together very soon. And maybe maybe they'll even let us come back to the Learning Curve every now and again as as guest hosts or something like that. So until next time, Gerard. See you very soon.
0: Take care, my friend.